Hello again and welcome to Precisely, a precision medicine podcast brought to you by Systems Biology Ireland. Our host today is Professor Helen Roach, Vice President for Research, Innovation and Impact at UCD, who is also an expert in the field of nutrigenomics. Helen is joined by Professor John Reynolds, National Lead for Esophageal and Gastric Cancer in Ireland. With that, I will hand it over to you, Helen. Great. Thank you very much, John. You're very welcome. Pleasure. Welcome to UCD. I guess when I was asked to do this podcast, looking at, say, precision medicine and looking at nutrition, I thought of you immediately. I thought of you because I've known you a long time when I was training either as a PhD student or as a postdoc, as a medic with a great interest and value in nutrition. And I guess I wanted to have a conversation in relation to what you thought was important in this space within the context of, say, esophageal cancer, which we'd work on quite closely, and maybe any other cancer areas. Well, thank you very much, Helen. I think, I mean, the reason I have an, an interest in the space was because of my education and uh, research. And uh, when I'd completed surgical training in Dublin and Cork, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and the Wistar Institute and did two years of full-time laboratory research on nutrition and cancer and studied the impact of malnutrition, so poor nutrition, on the immune system in particular and how that impacted on cancer immunology and cancer biology. It was a great education that then stayed with me during my career and fortunately or unfortunately uh, my clinical work as a consultant brings me into contact on a daily basis with patients who are at risk of significant problems from malnutrition mm -hmm. and with a cancer, esophageal cancer, that almost paradoxically is associated with obesity. And to trying to make some sense of that in terms of managing the patients, understanding how the disease develops and taking them through a very complex and difficult journey in cancer treatment that has a number of critical nutritional interfaces. One of the things I am passionate about that there's still a major gap in our system in medical schools, certainly, you know, in Ireland and I think throughout Europe, because I know I'm part of Europe-wide call to action really on this is to better educate doctors, trainee doctor students, medical students and other healthcare professionals on nutrition because that's the gap. It's a big challenge really for clinicians, isn't it, in terms of trying to understand what you should do and shouldn't do. And I guess your whole area, like we would work in the area of obesity related cancers, say yourself and myself and your colleague Jacinto O'Sullivan, who's professor in your group, um, you know, looking at different forms of obesity, the roles potentially for different nutrients. And so on one hand, you have obesity triggering the disease, and now that's a greater risk factor than smoking. And then on the other hand, you have a patient who by the end of their cancer journey are going to be certainly not obese and, you know, malnutrition is going to be a huge issue. So for me, what I've always been struck with is really good clinicians nearly know, or I think they know, when they see the patient coming in, they know what that scenario is going to be. But if I was starting out as a medical student, what sort of tools do I need to be able to define those risks, define the patients? Like, 
how would you change that education system or how do you train your your trainees? Well, one of the things that the Irish Society of Clinical Nutrition Metabolism has been instrumental in doing in Ireland and mirroring what's happened in a number, not all Western European countries, is to get nutritional risk screening done at the initial point of contact for patients in hospital and hopefully soon in nursing homes as well. Because in hospital, hospitalized patients, up to 30, 40% are at risk of malnutrition. Mm. So they're either at risk or they have it. They may not, for whatever condition brought them in, they may not be adequately nourished for days before there's any nutritional uh, assessments or therapies delivered. Mm-hmm. It's reckoned that this costs billions in terms of costs because of its association with comorbidities, its association with outcomes in particular. So malnourished patients, very interestingly, actually, uh, in the pandemic, that malnutrition in the key studies that were done of the impact of nutrition on outcomes of patients who had COVID-19 and SARS respiratory problems in particular, the outcomes were significantly worse for those who were malnourished. And that could be from the malnutrition that you and I, we all identify with, you know, the very clearly a lot of weight loss and thin and so-called cachectic mm-hmm. features that would normally be associated with cancer, but we can see it obviously in infective diseases as well. Uh, but also patients obviously who, who have malnutrition by being ob- obese with associated problems mm-hmm. to do with metabolic syndrome and uh, and multi-organ uh, impact of that. Uh, and so the outcomes were, were worse. And that's a good kind of recent, recent, ex- recent example of the impact of that. And it's clearly in other areas, cancer is obviously my, my, my area, the, the impact of malnutrition, whether it's protein deficient malnutrition, classical malnutrition, even at a moderate level, never mind severe level, and of obesity at a more severe level is very uh, significant in terms of not doing as well through the treatments like chemotherapy and radiation therapy and major surgery and having uh, long-term uh, you know, detrimental uh, quality of life issues and a worse overall survival. So making sense of all of that, because not everybody would apparently the same degree of nutritional problem has the same degree of impact from that. Making sense of that, I think, is where precision medicine is going and you're getting it, the current research and research that you're doing, Helen, I would like to hear about that as well, but get kind of get a deeper understanding, a deeper understanding, like a deep phenotypic analysis yeah. of, 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 of the nutritional problem rather than just a visual, somebody's malnourished, yeah. somebody's obese, but... You know, for example, we know many people who are obese and have a very high BMI. They're perfectly fine. Perfectly metabolically fine and some are not. So a better understanding of that is really kind of uh, key to this. And that's where a lot of the research is. Yeah, no, I'd agree with you because from our perspective, that sort of precision nutrition within, which is trying to get a, a, a more accurate lens on somebody's nutritional status, that's so important because I think sometimes in the nutrition field, you think of obesity as a disease which, you know, causes maybe type 2 diabetes, some of the cancers. But there's a huge amount of heterogeneity or differences between people. As you say, some people will, they can eat what they want, they can do what they want and they don't get that risk. Whereas other individuals, for whatever reason, 
they're far more susceptible. But also in the nutrition field, sometimes we just focus too much on the obesity as in the excess calories. Maybe we should be looking at it more in terms of those individuals will be, say, malnourished. They don't look malnourished when they walk into a clinic, but they're really poor, say, micronutrient uh, status, even though they look very well nourished. And it's very important because an awful lot of the sort of protective mechanisms and the enzymes that the body has, say you've got the ROS system, which is for getting rid of reactive oxygen species, all of those enzymes, they need selenium, they need zinc, they need all these sort of cofactors to work properly. And maybe it's not just the excess part. We need to think about obesity and cancer risk, but we also need to think about the things that we can't see. And that's where you need the deep nutritional phenotyping. And I guess I've always um, looked up to you as a physician because you've had great foresight. So say with uh, respect to your biobanks, with time, you could retrospectively analyze so many of those sort of patients who have gone through your system and we could retrospectively phenotype them from a nutritional perspective and go, OK, was it just the high BMI or was that associated with maybe bad fatty acids in in their diet, which you'll see in their plasma samples and you can analyze them? Or was it more the micronutrient status that was more important? And then maybe with fancy algorithms and all these sort of systems biology approaches, which I sort of rely on my bioinformatics friends to use and to work it up. But maybe in the future, we can sort of pool all of this information such that, you know, the next generation of physicians and also dietitians and also physiotherapists, because it's very much part of a multidisciplinary team, we can then make better decisions in terms of defining risk for a patient and or maybe therapeutics. Yeah, no, I agree. But I mean, it's incredibly complicated sure. because... Whatever about an individual condition like, let's just say, esophageal cancer, mm-hmm. it's much more a homogeneous mm-hmm. sort of entity, even though it's not. Cancer yeah. can be, there can be many different elements to it, but nutrition, there is so heterogeneous in terms of the impacts on that physical activity, mm-hmm. when they eat, eating habits, yeah. night shifts, all that sort of, yeah. or, sort of, sort of things, genetics. Stressful all of the life. stressful life, all mm. of the all of these things fact, mm. factor uh, factor into it. So it's much more difficult to unravel. What I've tried to do, or I'll just give kind of I can give the example of esophageal cancer because you mentioned it earlier on. Now, esophageal cancer is interesting by virtue of the fact that you know the obesity pandemic, if you like, you know, mm-hmm. worldwide has started really maybe North America 20, 30 years mm-hmm. ago, and is in what the Western world big t- big time now. It, it, in parallel with that, there's been an increase in incidence of a, of a lot of cancers, including uh, endometrial, gynecological cancers. I think you had a podcast on that recently as well. Uh, postmenopausal breast cancer and in the gut, colorectal cancer and esophageal cancer, kidney cancer as well. Esophageal cancer is probably via a few different mechanisms. And one of them, interestingly, is promotion of reflux. Because if men in particular is usually cancer of men, if they've got that big gut mm-hmm. called central fat, central, ob- central obesity or visceral obesity, that can impact on the control mechanism of the lower sphincter of the esophagus that controls against acid reflux. 
and cause hiatus hernias and the like, and that can promote chronic mm-hmm. reflux. And that can be in some people who are probably maybe genetically predisposed, predisposed towards, uh, towards cancer. That's one mechanism. But the really interesting mechanism that's common to all the cancers is that the fat itself, particularly this central fat, belly fat, produces a lot of factors that impact on the so-called hallmarks of cancer. So they produce growth factors that can increase in susceptible environments like the esophagus or in susceptible patients based on genetics, who knows? They can increase proliferation, ability of cells to survive, the ability of cells to form tumors and invade, metastasize, the ability of cells to, cancer cells, to evade the natural defenses, the army, the host immune system, all of those factors. And also uh, create a new metabolism, a new type of metabolism, a new type of energy utilization that's that's uh, unique to cancer, the so-called Warburg uh, effect. So all of those things are relevant to obesity-associated cancers, esophageal being one, one of them. So what we have done in terms of biobanking, and obviously I'm passionate about this, it just means that for all the big problems now that we see today, whether it's cancer or non-cancer, where we have an opportunity to store blood for DNA and RNA, tissue like cancer tissue, the tissue beside the cancer that's precancerous often, like in so-called Barrett's esophagus and mm-hmm. the esophagus, fat and liver even. Mm-hmm. So what we do on all the patients we've, we've operated on over, God knows, proper consented for research, as they invariably do. Mm-hmm. Patients are very connected with these programs. Uh, we take a little bit of the fatty tissue from their abdomen, a small liver biopsy, and some fat tissue from just beneath the skin so that we can, and blood so that we can compare the factors that are produced by all those areas. And the interesting elements of that research many publications, is that that type of situation for the fat and liver produces what's called a very pro-inflammatory environment Mm -hmm. or milieu that can have an impact on the tumor microenvironment. So in the pre-cancer situation, like in many cancers, including esophageal and in cancer itself, those factors, immune factors, growth factors, all sorts of factors, vascular endothelial mm-hmm. growth factors, they can have an impact on that. And so we know that's happening. What we don't know is how exactly you can block it, yeah. other than by targeting at a population level good metabolic health and mm-hmm. therefore better metabolic programs and weight programs and so on, because I think that's important. But in terms of if somebody has that, how you... How you change that is yeah. is that so that's one thing. So biobanking must be done, and we have a resource then that in the future, if new knowledge emerges from whatever center wherever, we have an opportunity to go back, as you say, and and uh, and look at that. And then the other interesting thing about the esophageal cancer journey then is that they have treatments that impact like chemotherapy and radiation therapy and a very, very complex operation 
that very much impacts on their ability to sustain weight. Mm. And some patients lose a huge amount of weight. And what's really interesting now internationally is that the whole thing about uh, nutrition in cancer mm -hmm. has shifted very much from weight being the central topic mm -hmm. to function, muscle function, because muscle function might be what you see in a obviously very malnourished patient, but that muscle, there's loads of muscles internal that are very relevant to the patient's outcome, including the heart and the diaphragm and lungs, not just the muscle in their body. And also what's really interesting is because many of the patients are obese, they, that hides the muscle loss. So significant muscle loss that has a very bad impact on their outcomes. And that's called sarcopenia. And again, we know in our patients with esophageal cancer who go through the treatments, by the time they even get to surgery, about a third are sarcopenic. So they've depleted oh, okay. muscle. Yeah. They're already there. And we know that that itself is a predictor of more complications after surgery and worse quality of life and longer recovery and much greater, greater cost. So all this, it's kind of at a macro level, mm -hmm. but it's getting really deep into that now yeah. is where the, where the future, yeah, future no, is. It is. And interestingly, when you were saying that, I was thinking about Eva Ryan, who's one of your former trainees. She's a research dietitian based down in University College Cork. Ethan and myself were working together and we're using proteomics through the SBI system and Precision Oncology Ireland. And we're trying to figure out a signature that would differentiate, say, patients who, and she has well characterized them clinically. So she knows that they're sarcopenic, which means that you've just lost skeletal muscle mass or cachectic, which means you lose skeletal muscle mass because you've got cancer cachexia and it's quite different. But we're able to see quite big differences between the patients um, in terms of trying to then identify sarcopenia and cachexia and then outcome. Hopefully that greater insight will give us a more accurate lens because, as you say, it makes a huge difference in terms of outcome. And then, yeah, and then the other dimension to that is how nutrition works with conditioning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the rugby mm -hmm. team of the Irish rugby yeah. team who train here in their fantastic facilities. They will have a sports nutritionist and a physiotherapist working like that, yeah. totally aligned. And it, the same applies across healthcare now where nutritional problems are important to patients' yeah. outcomes. Cancer is obviously my area, but cardiovascular disease, there's many other chronic diseases, there's many other in intensive care every, everywhere. But within cancer now, the multidisciplinary team, the, again, with a big, big focus on function, mm -hmm. you can understand how getting enough nutrition in, in the right way mm -hmm. for the particular patient at any time, has to connect with muscle conditioning. So where the focus has been for example, lots of patients after operations traditionally used to be left in bed for days. And even yeah. now they probably still are in bed for way too long. Whereas there's a whole ethos now is called enhanced recovery after surgery is found. It's the ideas were formulated by Professor Kenrick Kellett from Copenhagen, uh, who is now Professor of Perioperative Medicine there. But I mean, he's, he's it's an international thing now that you try to mobilize your patients and get them moving so that their muscles muscle function has improved That's and that right. has an outcome on their lung function, mm -hmm. heart function, 
and their overall recovery and their length of stay in hospital. But the paradigm, if you like, or the the sense of what we can do with patients at real risk of loss of function Mm -hmm. from nutrition-related problems and the things we throw at them, like major surgery and chemotherapy and radiation therapy, is that they should be doing maybe a little bit of resistance training as well because the walking will improve the mitochondrial function, if you like, within the muscle, but the muscle mass, the muscle bulk, the muscle function, uh, which is important, responds much better to some resistance training. So in Trinity now in St. James's with the esophageal program, and we have international uh, collaborations as well, but is to try and have dietitians and physiotherapists working closely together on patients who are going through the cancer journey for esophageal cancer and for lung cancer because they're very attritional with respect to muscle and patients might start off a little bit malnourished and they're at risk of getting profoundly malnourished. So working on nutrition and conditioning together. Yeah. Sounds simple, but it's new and it's wonderful and the patients respond so So, so well to it. When I trained in dietetics, you gave patients their high protein, high calorie, you know, diet as it were, but they laid in bed. But essentially, nutrition is no good and it's completely ineffective unless you couple it with physical activity and particularly, as John said, resistance exercise. And it's probably because the muscle needs to be stressed a little bit in order to activate it. And as John said, you know, getting the mitochondria going, the mitochondria are the sort of fuel. They're like the boiler system or your heating system in your cells. And by only having that energy metabolism just at the right way, it really does. It's quite remarkable. And indeed, the Scandinavian countries, they're so way ahead in terms of their knowledge and their insight. And yet it's quite difficult to do to for patients to do that or the clinical system, because in Ireland, I guess St. James would be quite unique in terms of having that very close relationship between nutrition and dietetics and then the physiotherapy departments in order to, you know, take both combinations in it. The interesting thing is if somebody's lying in bed, if a, yeah. a male volunteer mm. lay in bed for a week, they'd lose about 1.5 kilogram of muscle. Yeah. Or if somebody's got their leg in a plaster mm. for a week, they lose a phenomenal, phenomenal yeah. amount of muscle. So uh, the, the maths are easy, mm. but it's implementation of that at a ward level and a nursing home level and, and that sort of thing. And it comes back to the point I made earlier on is that everybody involved in the delivery of healthcare needs to have some understanding and background mm-hmm. in this. And that's a work, very much a work in process yeah. globally. Globally, there's no, Canada yeah. is probably better the, and leads. Mm-hmm. And certainly uh, some of the studies that have really interested me now, for example, are that they look at patients' muscle mm-hmm. function. They might measure the, the size of the muscle sometimes take muscle in yeah. research studies, take muscle biopsies and give radio act, radio labeled amino acids mm-hmm. intravenously to look at what happens, yeah. the metabolism and the uptake of proteins, mm-hmm. if you like. So very, very interesting, no, really interesting studies. studies. And they're lovely studies and they're getting at this at a deeper level. But the, I suppose that the take home point for me anyway, from the last few years is to consider uh, the muscle almost like a, an organ that has a multi-system impact. Yeah. And if somebody has cancer or some other chronic diseases or has acute illnesses mm-hmm. like a COVID infection mm-hmm. or whatever, 
essentially there's an accelerated aging yeah. of their muscles. So we all lose our muscle when we're getting into yeah. our 80s and so on. But that's there can be a massive acceleration of that and sometimes incomplete recovery mm-hmm. unless it's addressed through cancer treatments and other and yeah. other illnesses. And I think that's a hugely important uh, point. Weight is... Weight More is less important. BMI. Yes, less important. So less important because yeah. BMI is completely confusing. You mm. can have patients who have massive BMIs who are malnourished, yeah. severely muscle malnourished, yeah. and yet you wouldn't you wouldn't recognize it. So it's important we have to move to different markers of yeah. uh, nutritional well-being. And indeed, we've uh, recently we finished a study where we were say measuring muscle protein synthesis post a nutritional supplement, say it was high protein, contained a lot of long chain N3 polyunsaturated fats, which are those fish oils, which are supposed to be anti-inflammatory. And the long and the short of it was we gave in a very large cohort these supplements, but it didn't work. And it didn't work because we didn't complement it with the resistance exercise. And, you know, work, say, from Luke Van Loon, and he's based in Maastricht, you essentially need that physical stress coupled with the nutritional therapy. I'd like to explore another area wherein, you know, some patients respond to therapies, some don't. And I've been thinking recently, you know, do you see a dual role of being able to nutritionally phenotype somebody as well as the pharmacotherapeutics? And do you see opportunities in that space? Very good question. And short answer really is we don't know if we don't know because we don't really study that we okay. give, we're probably still dealing certainly in my own world anyway at sort of a macro macro level mm-hmm. so making sure that patients who are at risk of malnutrition get fed and are mobilized and uh, having that within a very tight multidisciplinary team mm-hmm. program but actually looking at variations from one patient to the next in terms of what it achieves and the outcomes is something we haven't really developed to uh, mm. to a high level. I'd agree with you because I guess I started in this what we call nutrigenomic space about 20 years ago and initially I thought it's all about the genes you know definitely and in that time I've sort of transitioned and now it's all about the functional readouts as in the functional genomics and by that I mean the amount of a gene that is expressed. Less to do with the genes that you have in your DNA structure, as it were, but it's how those genes are expressed. And that's where the environmental element comes. And that environmental element, either being your nutritional status, your physical status, your, I don't think we can underestimate the impact of stress. And because all of these feed into your metabolism and you referred to this inflammatory phenotype, which people have for whatever reason. And now metabolomics and also the immunophenotyping that we can do, we have the tools now that we can better characterize. And that's why those biobanks that you have are so rich because now that the technologies have advanced, we can start going back to firstly the well clinically phenotyped patient cohorts and then use the fancy tools to sort of define high risk, low risk. And I guess I don't know yet whether precision nutrition is more important in terms of defining risk factors or therapeutics, but I guess in terms of the therapeutics and malnutrition, that area, you have to feed the patient. You have to make sure that they're physically active. 
it's the risk factor and risks that, again, we're very much in the dark and need more insight in that space. I agree. So I think a lot can be done at, uh, you know, the macro sort yeah. of level. So the nutrition risk screening at the point of entry is an important start in that regard. It is, but isn't it... It's still a very blunt tool. They're very simple. They, I mean, there's a thing called GLIM now, the Global yeah. Leadership Initiative in Malnutrition, developed from the American Society and the European Society and mm. South American and Asian to get all together. And it's very simple. And it's really just to look at the phenotypes. In other words, things like weight loss. Mm-hmm. So greater than 10% of weight loss in six months. That's unintended. Uh, a low, very low BMI, even though BMI has uh, problems, mm-hmm. or muscle loss, so sarcopenia. So they're the phenotypic characteristics. And one of those, in addition to etiological factors, and the two etiological factors would be like an acute uh, inflammatory problem, like mm-hmm. an, acute, uh, an acute illness yeah. or chronic uh, sort of illness. So if you have one of each of those, then you're at risk of malnutrition and then the the weight loss and the sarcopenia is graded as moderate, mild, moderate or severe. And those sorts of things are helpful. They first, are. because it's global and it's published mm-hmm. and it's currently being validated mm-hmm. and that's what's needed and we're interested mm-hmm. and we're looking at it. And if it's properly validated, then it's such a simple, it's such it's a simple, simple tool. Simple too. But where that arrow points to we're going to have a lot of patients who are severely malnourished by that criteria mm-hmm. or at risk of malnutrition by the GLIM criteria, yeah. which is the current interesting mm-hmm. one. But what we don't have is enough specialist dietitians mm-hmm. to deal with it. So yeah. in terms of, we've touched on the science and, and education and awareness and here in this chat but policy is important as well. And I think we need a, a national policy that kind of addresses the patient's needs. And nutrition, because it's not... It's not seen as a hard science, nearly. Yeah. It's, it's, it impacts on so many diseases. So it doesn't have, even though we do our best when yeah. a nurse and others do, it doesn't have a direct line, if you like, to some department mm-hmm. because it's well, everywhere. It's yeah. within everything. Yeah. Without that sort of political maybe connection or mm-hmm. linear connection, it can struggle a little bit perhaps to get what it needs. But Neve Rice and Erspin and others have done some very nice work. And Indy have the Irish Nutritional and Dietetics Institute. Jennifer Fien and her colleagues have done some really nice work together to identify this huge gap that exists, for example, in cancer mm-hmm. and specialist dietitians. Yeah. So we know from research that's a lot of research that's been published that for cancer and other diseases, that if somebody's at risk of malnutrition and they get specialist dietitian input, this usually in the hospital setting, medical or surgical, and we're moving any type of problem, doesn't have to be cancer, that intervention will decrease length of stay. Yeah. So therefore, very significant cost savings. But more importantly, it, it, it decreases the risk of major complications in particular, mortality, 30-day mortality. So it was a big study, effort study, I think it was called, that showed that uh, showed this. So th- there's plenty of data out there to uh, support the impact of having a specialist dietitian in our programs, in our mm-hmm. hospital programs across 
the spectrum of yeah. diseases that we see that threaten nutritional nutritional well-being. And so one of the policy things that we need, I mean, it clearly, and it's great, uh, led by UCD and Donald O'Shea and Carla Rue and Helen Heenan and colleagues, there is now an obesity policy addressing that, which took a long time to develop and mm-hmm. formulate, but it's great. Yeah. It's happening. You've done a lot in the whole area of public awareness. You mentioned policy, but really public awareness. What do people have to think about and reflect on? Well, I mean, most of the public awareness we have done, that I've done, would be connected with esophageal cancer and uh, charities such as the Esophageal Cancer Fund, the Irish Cancer Society and Breakthrough Cancer. Uh, they've all been uh, fantastically supportive of research and the Esophageal Cancer Fund in particular on public awareness of the, the signs and symptoms of the disease. The, the message with the public is more difficult with nutrition. It really is. I think we can do our best, but I think the messages in relation to what we're talking about today need to be heard more loudly by policymakers mm-hmm. and even by the administrators of our hospitals, heads of nursing, everybody. John, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed chatting to you and I look forward to collaborating with you for a long time too. Uh, likewise. Thank you very much, Alan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again, Helen and John. You really painted us a very vivid picture of the current landscape and how it goes hand in hand with precision medicine approaches. Thank you also to our listeners for your kind attention. As in all our episodes, if you're interested in learning more about what we do in Systems Biology Ireland, or if you're looking for information on any of our podcast hosts or guests, please take a minute to just check out the links in our podcast description below. Be sure to tune in again for our next episode. Until then, be well. Hello, Precisely Podcast listeners. Just wanted to let you know that we are working on some great new episodes for you, but we'll be taking a short midterm break and coming back to you around the end of November, early December with some new wonderful Precisely episodes. So please keep checking back and until we talk to you again, be well.